Hi, I'm Lynn Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Kyle Simpson. Kyle is an open web evangelist, popular speaker, writer, and JavaScript teacher. He has written uh, a number of books on programming, and you can find some of his courses for developers on Pluralsight and on frontendmasters.com, whereas we record this interview, it is Kyle Simpson week, which means all of Kyle's courses are free through December 4th. So we're going to try to get this podcast out in record time so you can hear about this. Um, in fact, I believe Kyle is joining me fresh from a live Q&A with some Frontend Masters members. So I wanted to say a special thanks for uh, doing this on a little bit of short notice. Um, Kyle is the author of a number of books published by, by O'Reilly, and he just recently launched his latest book on LeanPub, Functional Light JavaScript, Balanced Pragmatic Functional Programming in JavaScript, um, was released on Monday and is focused on setting out a unique bottom-up uh, pragmatic approach to explaining fundamental concepts from functional programming while avoiding unnecessarily heavy terminology and, in, in some cases, the mathematical notation that can maybe get in the way of achieving practical learning goals in a book like this. Um, in this interview, we're going to talk about Kyle's career, his professional interests, uh, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience self-publishing. So uh, thank you, Kyle, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thanks. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in computers and software. Absolutely. So I'm based in Austin, Texas right now, but uh, originally from Oklahoma. Um, how I got into programming was at the age of 11. So this is back around 1990-ish, um, way, way back. I uh, was over at a friend's house and his dad was a programmer and um, he was working on some stuff in the den and my friend and I walked in and we're just kind of curious looking over his shoulder and his dad saw our curiosity and he said, hold on a moment. And he click, click, clicked for just a moment and all of a sudden the screen went blue and, and this being 1990, this is pre-Windows. This is way back in the days of DOS. The blue screen went, uh, you know, blank with blue, and then a gray box in the middle that had my name in it. And uh, I was just absolutely fascinated by the fact that in just a few moments he was able to make the computer do whatever he wanted. And I got uh, interested in programming from that moment and uh, started trying to learn. This was pre-internet, so learning meant my parents buying me used computer programming books from bookstores. And I tried to cobble together some sort of um, crazy understanding of programming. And uh, I went through through high school, started doing some side contract work in programming and got into college, did some more of that. After college, went into software development as a career. So one of those rare few that from a young early age had an idea of what I wanted to do and I actually stuck with it and I still do that to this day. So I was a developer for about 15 years professionally until about five years ago when I was thinking about how I could make a bigger impact on the software developer community. Uh, I'd done open source projects for a long time, but I really wanted to give back in a bigger and more meaningful, lasting way. And I got a break, actually, through Frontend Masters. Um, the founder of Frontend Masters, Mark, called me up one day. I, we didn't know each other, but he called me up and said, have you ever thought about teaching? 
And uh, I was sort of taken aback because I'd done some of that in other areas of my life, but never professionally. And and so he spent a couple of weeks coaxing me uh, and coaching me, uh, convinced me to go try it. And so a little over five years ago, I gave my first uh, course as a JavaScript teacher and immediately fell in love with that and realized that that was what I was meant to do. And I wish I had learned it a lot earlier. Uh, but I figured out that that was what my passion and calling was. So I became a full-time teacher, and that to this day is still what I do. I, I travel around teaching primarily corporate on-site workshops in JavaScript at various companies all over the world. Um, along the way, I also started writing about the things that I was learning because people would ask me, like, hey, do you have instructor notes for your classes? And I thought, eh, well, I guess I'll write some stuff down, and blog posts turned into longer-form things, which naturally led to writing books. So I have published a number of books with O'Reilly, which is a big tech book publisher. Uh, most notably, I have a six-book series with them called You Don't Know JS, which is probably how I'm most well-known these days, and, um, and had a great relationship with them. But as I started thinking about the next book that I wanted to do afterwards, I started realizing that I wanted to have a little bit more control over the distribution channels um, and what kinds of deals that I could do. And that's what led me to start exploring uh, self-publishing. Yeah, so I've, got, I've got a lot of questions to ask you about that later on, um, including about your uh, crowdsourcing campaign. Um, but before yeah. we move on, um, one of the sort of unofficial themes of this podcast, because so many LeanPub authors that I interview are in, into software, um, is if you could start over now, or if you were giving advice to someone like yourself who are starting out now, would you formally study computer science in university? And I just wanted to frame this a little bit because often I don't have much of a frame for it. But in your case, um, you've done so much teaching and you wrote a blog po or you published a blog post a little while ago about a lot of the problems with kind of ed tech solutions, even the ones that have had lots of venture capital funding and also the dissatisfaction that a lot of developers feel even at a time when they have more resources ever available and you you yourself started something called devgo so i kind of mm -hmm. wanted to give you the opportunity to frame a response to the computer science question in that sort of yeah. richer context absolutely so the I'll, I'll break that down the first question the first layer of the question is if i could tell myself um from so long ago whether i should go into computer science or not uh if I really could tell myself to, to be totally honest, I'd tell myself to go into computer science, but I'd tell myself to leave high school early because when I graduated high school and went into CS, this was late nineties. Um, it was during the dot-com boom and my high school counselors were like, computer science is the thing. You'll make a hundred thousand dollars right out of college. And I got all excited and went, went and studied CS and, Midway through my junior year um, in early 2000s is when uh, the dot-com crash started to happen, and I realized that I had missed the boat by about a year, a year and a half. Um, so if I had anything that I could do differently, it'd be figure out how to get out of high school quicker, get into CS, and maybe I could have cashed in on the boom before the bust. But anyway, uh, I would still tell myself to do CS, and I'll, and I'll, I'll explain why. I definitely believe that there is a difference between programming and software engineering. 
that phrase software engineering gets thrown around a lot. And I think people have lots of different meanings by it. But I have a way that I frame the difference between a developer and an engineer. And sometimes it ruffles a little feather, so I'll give fair warning. Uh, it's not intended to be an insult. It's really intended to um, be an aspiration. But I think you can frame it this way. A developer seeks first to solve a problem and maybe later understand the problem. Whereas an engineer seeks first to understand a problem and maybe later solve the problem. And what I aspire for people to do and what I hope that my writing and teachings do is convince people that the engineering approach is the better approach. That's the better path. It's the more admirable path to take. And that's in spite of the fact that so many of us, including myself for so many years, find ourselves in that uh, that trench of, uh, yeah, I'd love to do it the right way, but I have a deadline and I just have to ship something and my boss just wants it to work and I don't really have time to figure it out. And uh, because I lived that reality for so many years myself, it's not that I have forgotten it, nor is it that I'm sitting in some ivory tower saying, uh, you should be that way and, and not really recognizing the implications. I do very much understand that challenge because I lived it. And what I also understand, and it's really what motivated me to become a teacher, what I also understand is that when you're in the trenches and you're basically left to your own devices to figure out somehow to make it work, and you said it was going to take four hours and you're on hour eight and your boss is you know, tapping their foot saying, when's this thing going to be done? Uh, when are you going to get it done? Because you didn't take the time to invest in understanding the problem, you essentially have no hope of really understanding your solution. And even if it works, you won't know why. And if you don't know why something works, you have no chance of making it, you know, fixing it when it breaks later. And so I, I took a step back and I said, I understand why pressure of deadlines causes us to cut corners, to do things that we don't fully understand. But that's it's, that's the negative snowball effect that that will cause that to happen more. The more we give into that, the more that will continue to happen. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, prophecy. So I took a step back and said, if for whatever crazy reason you be a, you're a developer, you're an engineer as a as a as a job, understanding what you do is the most important thing that you could invest in. Because it will it will do directly and concretely pay off when the pressure is on. If I understand a problem and then there's pressure, I know how to cut out all the 40 other things that I could try that won't work and get right to the right solution. But if I don't understand it, I'll flounder and I'll often come up with something hacky that, that doesn't work. So when I when taking a step back to that question of would you do computer science again? There's a vast amount of knowledge that I was taught in my CS degree that I don't use on a regular basis. Um, and I couldn't even fully, you know, somebody said, go, go implement a red black tree. Like I know what that is, but I couldn't go implement one on demand and have never needed to in my career implement some kind of, uh, you know, arcane data structure like that. But what the CS degree did do is teach me to understand problems. And I think that's really the engineering mindset. And I am I am tremendously grateful that I was taught that lesson early enough on 
that I was able at some point in my career to come back and say, how can I get that to others? Now, I'm not a CS professor. I don't I didn't go to university to do it. I tried to take the approach of I'm going to help people in the practical way. They're writing JavaScript for their jobs. Let me help them do that and do that better. But I still try to imbue that with that same passion. Understand what you're doing. Understand it more deeply because at the end of the day, um, the thing that we're really doing with our code is not instructing the computer. Uh, that was almost a happy side accident. At the end of the day, the real purpose of software development is to communicate ideas with other human beings. And if you don't understand the thing that you're doing and you're just hacking around until the right sequence of ones and zeros just accidentally happens, you've completely failed at the communication of that idea. And what that means is later whether that's next week or next month or next year, when somebody has to read that, and it won't just be once, it'll be dozens and hundreds of times when that code has to be read, nobody's going to understand it, not even your future self. Nobody's going to understand what it is, and we're going to get to the point, which often happens. I, I ask this of people all the time uh, in a room of developers. I'll say, how many of you have ever heard the conversation uh, – well, it would just be faster if I rewrote it. Like you're struggling to get something to work and it would just be faster if I rewrote it. There's a lot of churn. We rewrite code all the time. And I wonder how much of that rewriting happens because somebody didn't take the time to make sure they clearly communicated why they were doing something a certain way. So the future person that's maintaining that, even your future self, is can't remember that, can't reconstruct it. So you just throw away all that effort. I hear people push back when I tell them that, you know, uh, making code readable and understandable and communicating ideas well, that that is critical. And people will push back and say, well, it's a nice to have, just like tests are a nice to have and documentation is a nice to have. That's a nice to have. To me, when somebody tells me I don't have time to make my code readable, man, I just got to ship it. To me, it's like you don't have time not to make it readable. Because you have failed at the only purpose of that code to communicate an idea if it's not readable. Everything else, I mean, the computer can almost instruct itself at this point, but what it can never do is communicate those ideas. That's, really that's what, we, what that's, we need to be doing. That's really interesting you say that. When I was reading your book and when you were just talking now, you were reminding me of um, a woman named Janelle Klein who published a book on LeanPub called Idea Flow some time ago. And I, I, I guess there's one coincidence that occurred to me is I think she's actually from your neck of the woods huh. uh, near Austin. Um, and she, her book is about it, – it's, it's very much along the lines, I think, of what you're saying with respect to communication, which is basically that what happens is you have ideas in your head. I'll, I'll put it very crudely with developing or with, with programming and engineering that you have an idea in your head and then you express it in code and then it's going to go th essentially into the machine – and at some point, it's going to come out the machine into mm -hmm. someone else's brain. Yeah. And they're going to have to process it. And actually, that you can, you can almost think of it like, you know, um, actually as the idea, the ideas move through um, these various brains and screens um, into other brains um, and then get modified, and including your future brain, um, which is something you talk about. You know, future me will be much happier with present me. Um, if I just, you know, take the time because you're communicating with your future self as well um, when you're doing this. And I found that really um, compelling.
Yeah, I I, I I totally resonate with that message. So I'm going to go look that book up as soon as we're done here. That that sounds great. Um, I really, I, I almost believe that at a religious level, that that is, uh, that is our responsibility as developers is to leave a legacy to our future selves and our future team members of communicating well those ideas. And it's, by the way, not just the idea of the code that I wrote, because that you can see. But there's also the code that you thought about, you figured out shouldn't be there. And you didn't have any way to communicate in your code the stuff that I thought about and didn't put there and why that's not there. And we don't do a good job of articulating that mental context for people to reconstruct. And so I, I, I really believe that that's the next layer. And that's what I've dedicated my my teaching to career to. You know, you brought up uh, DevGo, so I should speak to that and how that weaves into this. Uh, I have now been a teacher for a little over five years, as I said, and I've primarily done so in the classroom, which is often seen as the gold standard for educational opportunities as opposed to just, you know, maybe reading a book or watching a video. It's a very one-way thing. And you think that in a classroom, you get this two-way interaction. The unfortunate part about the classroom is that it betrays the fundamental nature of how humans learn, which is that it tries to compress learning into a single transaction. If you look back over thousands of years of human history, all the skills that have ever been transferred from one human to another human have not happened through the mode of upfront fire hose of information and then you go on your way to go figure it out and implement. But rather they've happened slowly over time through the master apprentice or what we might modern times call the mentorship model where there was a little bit of information followed by a lot of practice and that was not – self-guided practice, but rather a master-guided practice. Uh, think about cooking. You wouldn't just say, oh, I watched a YouTube video, therefore I'm now an expert cook. You would have a master chef who sat with you and watched you bake that chicken over and over and over again and critiqued it and tweaked it and helped you to get better. Any skill that you can think of, that's the effective way to work. But in modern day, we've abandoned the notion of that relationship component of education because we can't figure out how to scale that to the modern workplace. We say, well, just scale content, right? Just put it in a video form, put it up online. A billion people can watch it. Therefore, we've, we've made education accessible to the masses, but we lost that human component. And so I have been watching my efforts as a teacher fail to be as deep and profound as I would uh, hope and aspire for them to be. And I, I kind of decided I needed to disrupt my own work, if you will, uh, to do it a different way. And so I started trying to figure out how could I scale mentorship-oriented learning to the modern workplace? How can you scale relationships and make that actually work? And I've come up with a, uh, an educational model and a way of doing that with technology that I think will work. And that's what DevGo is, uh, is dedicated towards, where everyone else seems to be skating towards let's scale content. DevGo is trying to scale the relationship part of education because I think that's the only thing that will actually turn knowledge into skill. Everything else is just focused on knowledge. And, and what model would you use to establish that relationship and those connections? 
so essentially the the process at the beginning is going to be similar to what a company would do now when they would hire me to come in and teach a one-week class but instead they would sign up for a mentoring service where the material that I would have presented in one week is instead presented in small chunks say an hour a week continually so every week you have your people meet online and receive one hour of content and then while that content's being presented, I am live in the same environment to be able to answer questions immediately as they may come up, help people facilitate. But the important part is that the rest of the week, when you're back to your job as a developer, instead of being left to your own devices to figure it out, the DevGo service enables a scalable way for your mentors to help you along throughout the week to check in with you, to uh, look at the code that you're working on and help you apply those concepts to your real work product. So that is moving beyond the just, I transferred some knowledge to you to almost to a consulting level. I'm helping you implement that knowledge in your actual job. Um, switching to one of your other passions, I wanted to talk to you about open source software. Yeah. Uh, when did you first develop an interest in that? And, and can you talk a little bit about your engagement with that with that world over time definitely and 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 that will flow back into writing as well which is a nice uh, a nice segue so i uh back in 2000 i think 8 um still working as a developer but i wanted to go to software developer conferences because i wanted to learn more and it was starting to be a thing that there were conferences dedicated to javascript now that's a common thing but back then it was not common javascript didn't have its own conferences until around that time and uh so i i knew some people that were involved in other conference scenes and i said you know i can't figure it out like how do you afford to go to the conference and i can't get my job to pay and give me time off and they said well the secret is you just talk at the you agree to speak at the conference and then they'll pay for you to go <laughs> and i thought oh that's brilliant i know how to publicly speak i can do that and then i started realizing what am i going to talk about what, what could I possibly go to a conference and talk about that would be remotely useful? And uh, I realized, well, I've got this project that I'm doing at work. Why don't I, instead of doing this as a, as a closed proprietary thing, why don't I figure out a way to make that an open source product? This is pre-GitHub. Why don't I make this an open source project that I'm also using at work? That kills two birds with one stone. But once it's a project, that's something I can go to a conference and talk about. Um, so the very first one I did of that was a thing called Flexor, which was Flash-based cross-domain Ajax. It doesn't even matter now because it's obviously irrelevant. But I, I built a little thing and I said, OK, I'm going to go talk at a conference. And I went to this conference and there were like four people in my room <laughs> listening to me give my first ever conference talk. But I, I gave a little talk on this thing and – I started refining not only my public speaking, but also I realized that uh, one of the reasons why that open source um, was going to be so powerful was not just that I could promote myself. That I, I mean, I have to be honest, that's part of it. I want to promote myself and, and that's part of how I pay my bills. But the bigger reason why I felt like open source was going to be so instrumental in my future 
was that it embodied the idea of collaboration in a way that I'd never been able to think about before. And every other previous time that I was ever working on something, if I struggled with something, I went out and Google searched or whatever or asked other people and I took the knowledge that they gave me and I brought it back and I implemented some solution that only I got to benefit from. And I realized with open source, the real benefit is that I put something out there and I get other people to help in a way that then benefits not just them, not just me, but anybody else that looks in on it, on that. And, and it's kind of like that ripple effect, like the pond will ripple more if you do so in the open. And so I, I began to realize that that was kind of in my DNA, that idea of collaboration. And that was before I knew that I wanted to be a teacher, but I definitely wanted to make a bigger impact. And so <clears throat> I started doing more and more of my work in the open source, wherever I could. Every time I took a job, I said, hey, uh, here's all these open source projects I've got. Uh, just so you know, I'm not giving that stuff up. That's important to me. Um, and I would I would disclose those and I would work on those at, at jobs and I would refuse jobs if they didn't want me to do it. I won't say who, but there was a there's a there's a huge company that everybody knows right now that um, tried to hire me. And when I went there, they said, you know, this is great. We want you to come work here. And I said, just so you know, I've got this project that I've got in the open source. A lot of people know me about it. I'm going to continue to maintain that project. I'm not giving that up. And they said, oh, yeah, um, we're, we don't allow our developers to work on open source. And I said, well, thanks very much, but I'm not going to take the job because this is part of who I am. And just to, just to interrupt there, did they explain why? Yeah, they did actually explain why, which, I've, which is hilarious. Um, they... So this was just a tiny little open source project. It was called, well, not tiny, but LabJS, which is a dynamic script loader. It's kind of one of my most popular, longest living um, open source projects. But uh, I said, you know, I've got this LabJS project that a lot of people use, and I'm going to continue to maintain that just so you're aware. And they said, well, we can't let, you know, we can't have you doing that as an employee because we have like some patentable proprietary stuff in the script loading space. And I was like, what? That's like crazy that you would have like a patent on this or whatever. But that's why they wouldn't let me do it is because they thought they had some kind of patent on it. I don't know. Or they were going to file a patent. I don't know. Anyway, so uh, yeah, so I passed on the job because open source, I, I think it matters. And, and I just want to say one, one more note on that whole notion of collaboration. Um, uh, this is deeply important to me that uh, that people – take this and, and chew on it. This, this isn't trying to be prescriptive of you need to do it this way, but I want at least people to wrestle with this question. Are you using open source to simply uh, promote yourself as, as, a, as a promotion channel or are you using it as a collaboration channel? And one of the reasons why I ask that question is because I find a lot of people telling me, oh, well, I don't put stuff in open source yet because I don't have it you know, it's not good enough yet. I hear people say that a lot. Oh, it's, I haven't open sourced it yet because it's not good enough. I hear people tell me I haven't written about stuff publicly. I haven't written blogs or books because I'm not a master at it. I hear that a lot. And um, I always hear when somebody says I haven't, um, I haven't put it out there because it's not good enough for others to see, I, I always hear it in reverse actually. Because the way I approach open source, and this has been true for years and years now, is that I will start 
a project, whether it be a code project or a book, with an empty file out in the open source world. And I will begin incrementally committing the stuff that I have to it. I, this functional light book that we'll talk about in a moment, I literally committed a paragraph. If you go back to the very first commit on that history, there's a paragraph, like the very first thing I wrote. Um, because I want people to see my journey, and because I start with the assumption that every version that I put out of something, whether it be code or text in a book, the version that I put out is the worst possible version of that. And that the only hope that I have of making it better is to get other people's eyes on it and to get other people's feedback and input on it. And so for me to hear somebody say, I haven't put this thing out there, this thing of myself, I haven't put it out there because it's not good enough yet. To me, what I hear is the reverse they don't realize how bad it is and how desperately they need people to help collaborate to make things better. I would never have been able to become the kind of developer I am, the teacher I am, and the author that I am if it weren't for open source and the collaborative nature of putting those ideas out there and having them be refined in the open with lots of people as opposed to just me holding on to it until I had perfected something that never would have worked for me. Um. Tying that together, uh, the, the open source projects, the iterating in public, but also the concept of promoting yourself. Um, and before we move on to the subject of your book, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, self-promotion and social media. Um, one of the most important tools self-published authors, you know, self-employed consultants and other independent content producers have available, at least according to basically everybody who gives advice about how to succeed in these areas, is social media. And over the course of quite some time, um, you managed to build a pretty successful presence on Twitter, in particular with over 30,000 followers. And then I think as I was preparing for this interview, I, that's when I discovered this. It was in early 2017 or so, I believe, that you decided to kind of drop off Twitter um, for the most part. And you explained your decision in a pretty moving post that you published in Medium on Medium in July. And so before um, we talk about why you dropped off, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the story from the beginning, about how you got started on Twitter and how did the ball get rolling? So I was at a conference in 2009 in Berlin. It was the JS EU, the first JS EU conference in Berlin. Um, people will note that historically as an important conference in that that was the conference where Node.js was launched to the world by Ryan Dahl. Um, and I was there in the audience when that happened. It was a, it was a pretty uh, incredible uh, thing to see the shift happen so quickly. Um, but I was at that conference getting ready to give stand up and give a talk about my Lab.js project. And I didn't have either a GitHub account or a Twitter account. And I saw several of the other speakers did. And so literally about an hour and a half before my talk, I signed up for Twitter and GitHub at the same time. And I said, well, if I'm about to go like talk about this thing, like there should be a way for people to you know, give me feedback or something. So I signed up for those for those accounts at that time. Uh, I didn't really know what um, what Twitter and really the bigger question about social media. I didn't really have a plan for how that was going to fit in, but it was very much like um, 
you know, in the initial days, it was like, oh, I'm going to use this as like a communication channel. Like people can ask me a question or I can answer or whatever. Over time, I started being more self-promotional. I started tweeting about the things I was doing, where I was going to go and speak. And so I, I began to develop a presence there. And, and through my conference speaking, got a lot of followers to the Twitter account. Sometime over those first couple of years, it shifted from I'm using it only for tech to this is my personal voice. Um, this is, you know, my Twitter account, even though it's everybody knows me as Getify and and that is that I'm a JavaScript developer. Like I have lots of other thoughts about stuff and I might as well just share all of those ideas. If people are interested, great. If not, they'll leave. But at least I'll I'll talk about them. And it was peculiar to me because the more I did that, the more followers I got. I thought I would lose followers when I started talking about non-tech stuff, like if I talk about politics or religion or you know culture or something like that, I thought I would lose followers and I got more and more. And it was peculiar over a while, after a while because it felt like everything that I did that should lose followers made them and everything that I should do did that should gain followers I would lose. It was very counterintuitive and I didn't have any um, well-articulated strategy around it, but almost like do do the opposite of your intuition and you'll get more followers. And it felt at the time that getting more followers was the success metric. Um, if I have more followers, then that means I'm more successful. Um, upon reflection, I would say I probably should have followed my instinct and not just tried to seek after the metrics because as I allude to in that post, by creating a big following in social media, I converted myself from being a person to being a personality. And with that comes some responsibilities that I was not cognizant of and not prepared to shoulder. Um, and it didn't come right away, but over time, I developed in that persona, that personality um, that people expected of me to be the contrarian. They expected of me to be the one to, you know, when everybody else is saying this, go to Getify because he's going to give you the different perspective on why you should do it a different way. And, and you know, uh, to start debates and, and call it, not really stir controversy, but to to not just accept the status quo. Um, that became kind of my brand. And I followed that brand um, beyond tech. Uh, I had the same thing with culture and religion and politics and everything else. And I didn't realize that people are tolerant of that brand when it's about JavaScript, but they're much less tolerant when that brand is applied to, say, for example, religion or politics. And in the heated culture of the last couple of years, as things have gotten, uh, it's gotten a lot more difficult to speak your mind in in the open. Uh, I, I, I was way too deep in my addiction over being able to stir those debates up on any topic to realize that I was leading myself down that path. Um, and so that's what that blog post was about, was like, I, I got in too deep, I got too addicted to hearing my own voice and, and feeling too self-important about my own voice. And it wasn't on purpose. It was just little by little, tweet by tweet. Yeah. Um, I wanted to say, uh, you know, the, the, 
I think I think for the purposes of this conversation, your medium post is so articulate we can probably bracket you know some of the um, you know personal experience you had with addiction and things like that. And I would just recommend people go to the post to find out about that experience. Um, uh, given that you know the conversation on Twitter is something a lot of people are preoccupied with, um, there's something there that's more of an abstract sort of philosophical cultural issue that you invoke that I wanted to ask you about. Um, and you say in the post, quote, those who understand a conversation's full context, when they discuss such publicly, practically beg others to come in without that context, and yet be co-equal participators, end quote. And if you, I know I'm quoting at you something you wrote many months ago, but if you could, <laughs> if you could maybe, if you could recall what you were getting at with that, because that's, that, that struck a chord with me, because that's something I think about quite a bit myself when I'm, you know, going on Twitter and reading replies and things like that. Yeah. Um, you know, that there's multiple layers that you could analyze the emotions behind that statement. One obvious layer is a critique of the Twitter platform itself. The, the, the short form 140 characters, the pretty primitive threading that's involved, um, the ability for anybody to chime in, you know, so it could be a critique of the technology and the platform and the user experience. And I think there's a fair bit of that involved, but I think the bigger question, it kind of goes back to what I said about open source. Like when you do something in the open, you're asking for collaboration. You don't go do something in the open and say, Hey, here's me and this other dude that are going to talk about it. And y'all just listen. You do it in the open because you want them to be part of it. If you didn't, you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't do it in the open. You just have a text message conversation, a private phone call, you meet at a coffee shop. The fact that you do it in any form on social media, and that goes from Twitter to Facebook to Instagram or whatever, like pick pick your <clears throat> pick your channel. When you do it in the public, you are asking people to um, not just listen, but to provide their feedback. And the, the problem with that is that they are providing their feedback with very imperfect context. Imagine that you and a friend have had a months-long discussion over many, many coffees about something, and you have lots of deep context about that person and their history and their background or whatever. And then just one day at a coffee shop, some dude is overhearing you, and, he, and you say something, and he turns around, and he's like, I think that's totally wrong, and here's why. That that uh, that injection of information is completely without context. And yet, because we do this on social media, we're basically saying every tweet is equal to every other tweet. Your tweet, without any context, it has just as much weight on the topic and just as much reach on the topic as my tweet that I've spent months or years thinking about. Yeah, that's and that's the part that that really struck me in 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 a, in a different in a different dimension. But you know, they sort of intersect, which is, you know, for example, you know, in your in what you're talking about is you know you and someone else, or or you yourself in your own uh, tweets may have developed this rich context over time, and someone just dives in and sees one thing and starts talking about it as 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 though they know the whole context. And another version of that that happens on Twitter um, is like, let's say you can subscribe to foreign affairs and you can um, uh, study political science in school and you can study abroad and you can work for the state department for, for years. And then you can come back and write a book and, and then 
you know, you'll tweet about something and somebody will just go, the Iran deal is terrible. I just, I just heard about it from my buddy down at the bar. And, you know, uh, I think there's just, there is something interesting. Normally I'm very skeptical about, um, claims that, you know, like there, there should be establishment of authority on the internet and stuff like that. But I guess to me, it, it is, it, it really is interesting that like to a certain type of person, the fact that they visually see themselves as equivalent to whomever else they're interacting with on Twitter, they somehow don't, they're certainly not challenging themselves to hold themselves to a higher standard, but they don't get challenged to hold themselves to a higher standard. And I really do think there is something about the platform that discourages people from engaging in that kind of questioning. And so another version of that, which you, which you encountered, I think was people telling you what to say and what not to say, you know, I wish you'd just stick to JavaScript. So like, you know, I follow a few celebrities on Twitter, like Ron Perlman and Vincent D'Onofrio, and they'll constantly get people telling them, you know, just someone randomly, like, I mean, you know, on their couch, starts telling another adult human being not to talk about something because they personally sitting there on their couch don't want to see it in that in their timeline. Um, and I don't really know what I have to say about that, except to kind of agree with with a lot of your assessment, just from a slightly different perspective. And and to to two points on that. First, what you just said about people kind of policing the content producers that they listen to. If you're an individual person and some other individual person says, hey, individual person B, I am A and I don't like what you're saying, that's ludicrous, right? But at some point, an individual person might uh, cross the bridge from just an individual person to some sort of public persona or brand or expectation where the same kind of um, free form thought is maybe not as acceptable. And this is what I didn't come to terms with that at some point by asking so many people to follow me by trying to benefit so much from my larger voice and my bigger social media presence or whatever. And, and just so we're aware, this is 30,000 followers. I'm not like, you know, president Barack Obama with millions of people like, but, but my, in my little world, 30,000 is a decent following. Right. And so, but by by asking people to follow me, there was an unspoken contract that I would give them the kinds of things that they would be appreciative of. And the more I solidified that contract by creating a public persona, the more I restricted what I should and shouldn't say, maybe. Um, and so that's the part that I didn't I didn't really um, think about, uh, and, and come to terms with, and, and I still don't have an answer for, I'm, I'm not even art well articulating it now, but another thing that you said, um, in terms of like internet authority, I know that's a very dodgy topic, right? Because we now live in the, in the age of fake news and how who can even know what is or isn't real about a thing that you, you hear or see and technology is making that even harder. Um, if you imagine I'm being a bit more old school and dating myself, but some people may know the name Harry Kissinger, who is uh, uh, in, in in most respects a, a historical figure. Like it, he, you would you would say of his Henry Kissinger, that guy knows foreign affairs, right? Like uh, 
so whether you like the politics around Henry Kissinger or not, that's not my point. But if Henry Kissinger had a Twitter account, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't, I don't know. But if he had a Twitter account and he and he went on and he said something about the Iran deal, right? And he said, this is missing this context. Maybe he praised it or he, he uh, critiqued it or something. And then some random person walks by and says on walks by on Twitter and says, "Well, what do you know, Henry? Like, what do you know? Like, that's 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 an essence of what I'm getting at here is that he does know what he's talking about, and yet at that moment those two are co-equal in the social media sphere, and it's almost unfair to expect another person to subjugate themselves to his authority. Both of them have gotten into a medium that reduced them both to the same level. And that's part of the reason why a meaningful, substantive conversation on a foreign affair could not happen in there, because you can't bring in the context appropriately. You just can't. And it's not, that's not a critique of Twitter. It's really a critique of the notion of conversation in social media. And um, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this after talking about, um, you know, some of your open source projects and things like that was your explicit in the, in your medium post about the price you paid mm. that once you, uh, you know, gave up this platform, you could do a lot of work on projects and they just wouldn't get the traction that you could be quite certain they would have got otherwise. And I imagine the same is true for everything you do. I mean, you know, the, 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 the one's platform online is what one uses to, get the word out about one's work. Um, and uh, if you're not fortunate enough to have, you know, a whole organization putting, you know, three-story billboards of you up on in Times Square or something like that, you know, it's all that work that you put in over all that time that helps you, you know, bring attention to your new work. Um, we wrote that post a few months ago, I guess, asking you again now, are you, are you still, are you confident you made the right choice given that, consequence uh that that is a a very tough question to ask um so i would have to answer that by saying if i review the kind of person that i am today compared to the kind of person i was back in january when i was right right before i left but when i was in full-on rant mode um I think I'm a better person. I think I uh, understand myself and others a lot better. And I think I appreciate the nuances of uh, persona and expectation a whole lot, you know, universally better than I did back then. And I also think that um, I have been able to check one of the worst parts of my own nature, which was that addiction to my my opinion on anything mattering. I was addicted, as I said in the post, to uh, because I could see any conversation going on and because I had some established authority, that meant my opinion mattered. And so I could show up in any conversation and say, well, Getify says this. And I was addicted to that ego boost that I got every time I got to chime in and be the the uh, contradictory voice in some debate or, or whatever. And I loved when people would write me a tweet and say, Hey, Getify, what do you think about this? And I'm like, well, let me, let me tell you what I think about this. Cause I'm so smart. Um, I have cured that addiction, not quickly, but I've cured that addiction now. Um, mostly by giving myself the freedom to not respond when people write me stuff. 
I, I left the platform entirely for six months and then I wrote that post and I decided to kind of ease my way back in, but mostly in a read only mode. And I'll illustrate that by saying what my, you know, reading you what my current Twitter profile says is this account is a passive protest of everything that used to matter to me about social media. There's contradiction in that. And I'm fully aware of that, that almost hypocrisy of contradiction there. Um, the fact that I participate in social media is because I'm still struggling with the fact that, like you said, I need to have a presence to be able to promote myself, but I also need to be able to keep it in enough at arm's length that I don't suck myself back into those old temptations. And so I, I don't have a good answer for how to do it. I'm not, I'm not operating off of some good playbook and, and no one listening should think of my, path as a path to emulate, but I try very hard to use Twitter more as a read medium than as a promotion medium. And I only promote things when there's a very clear objective. Like for example, we mentioned the Kyle Simpson week. Well, I had to get my mindset into, I'm going to be on Twitter a lot this week and I'm going to be promoting myself a lot this week. And that's going to invite a lot of feedback, both good and bad. And I need to make sure that when I see a tweet that I disagree with, I literally just shut the laptop and walk away instead of feeling like I need to fire that off. And I didn't even do that perfectly. I got into some debates this week, which I probably shouldn't have um, on some topics. But uh, to me, the as I say in that post, to me, the healthy level of Twitter is almost zero. It's not zero. I didn't completely close the account. But to keep it at a minimum is the only healthy way that I know how to do it. And another way that I've solved this is I've got now multiple Twitter accounts where I'm doing different things with different accounts. So there's not as much mixture. Um, uh, like for example, for the book, I have one specifically for the book. So anything about the book, I'm going to use that account for. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying, but I don't have, um, I don't have it all figured out. And, and, and you, your, your bigger question of, did you might make the right choice? I'm a better person and I can't imagine that any choice that makes you a better person is a bad choice, but it wasn't an easy one. And it hasn't been easy to figure out. Well, um, thanks for, thanks for talking about it. I really appreciate that, um, that you did that. And so, and so frankly, um, moving on to, um, your book, which is other than talking about you, the ostensible <laughs> reason for this, uh, this podcast episode, um, the book's called functional light JavaScript. And I guess I wanted to ask you to first talk about this concept of, of lightness and you, you also talk about deepness and other things along mm -hmm. those lines as well. And the difference between that and advanced and beginner. And, and, and I was just wondering if you could talk, give, give us your thoughts along those lines. Yeah, absolutely. So in the, in the, um, GitHub repo read me for this book, um, I guess we should have been more explicit about this earlier. In addition to doing all of my code in the open source, I do also do all of my book writing in the open source. So all of the books that I've ever written, I've written them on GitHub. They're all publicly available um, because I have the same perspective on book writing that I do on code writing. Um, so, so in the readme for this functional light JavaScript book, I have a statement that basically says, uh, just FYI, you might think of the word light and 
in, in, and have that have that imply intro or beginner or easy guide or something like that. And I want to just say right off the bat, I don't think that's what I mean by that word. What I mean is specifically narrow in scope, but that doesn't betray the depth of the material that needs to be explored. Um, so I think of lightness in terms of every time I've ever tried to approach functional programming, the scope of material that comes at you is so broad, so many different terms, so many different concepts, so many different symbols and notations that I find that that breadth to be overwhelming. Uh, and I very quickly get overwhelmed. Uh, for me personally, I need a smaller scope with a deeper dive uh, into the why. And it, it, for example, if you if you think about uh, almost any other functional programming work, uh, you know, a book or something like that on functional programming, that in the first chapter or two, they're probably going to start talking about monads. That's probably going to come up pretty quickly, pretty early on. And I basically said, well, I don't want to talk about monads until, until literally Appendix B. Like, I don't even want to mention that word until then. And it's because I want you to understand all the concepts that make a monad useful. Whereas most of the functional programming material other than this book just simply state all of those as assumptions. Like, hey, we all know exactly how this works. So here's what we do. We're going to make a monad. And I'm like, no, we don't all know how this works and why we don't all fully understand function purity and and all that stuff and and that's something that should get covered more so i don't really mean that to be intro but it's like the backstory that we keep assuming people have i'm going to fill in the backstory because i didn't have it and i thought if i don't have it maybe there's others that don't have it the metaphor that i use both in the book and also in my teachings is um it always feel felt to me like i was coming up to the, the foot of a mountain um, with a very steep cliff face in front of me. And I could see up on the top of the mountain people that had already climbed who were articulating very, very clearly the benefits of the climb uh, to the point where I very much agreed that the climb was worth it, that it was going to be difficult, but the climb was worth it. So it wasn't that I didn't agree that climbing was useful. It wasn't that I couldn't tell the benefit uh, of this, but it was that they were saying, well, just use that pile of climbing equipment over there and just climb up the mountain. And I looked over at this pile of climbing equipment and I said, I don't know what that stuff is. And they said, oh, oh just, you know, use the rope in the carabiner and you can climb up. And it was as if the person on the top of the mountain had forgotten what it was like to not know what a carabiner was, forgotten what it was like to not know how to tie a, a knot in a rope. And I've asked this both my own self and anecdotally of others. Have you ever stopped and wondered about a thing that you know now and compared that to how you used to think about it before you knew how it worked, like any skill, whether it's woodworking or whatever, just like you used to not know it and you had a different way of thinking about it than you do now. Once you know it, it changes you. And so what I felt like the problem from a lot of um, functional uh, programmers was that they would forget what it was like to not know about the carabiner and the rope and um, be unable to articulate that detail. So they were they were already at this different level, which is once you already know those climbing, just climb the climb the mountain. 
And so I wanted to come along and say, what, what would it take to explain functional programming from the perspective of somebody that doesn't have any of those assumptions yet? Um, and I did something on purpose, which uh, I have a, a little anecdotal story about. I decided, as I said before, to incrementally write about these things rather than waiting until I had that topic fully congealed in my head. I wanted to write about it as I went. I wanted essentially the book to tell a story of my journey to understanding the climbing equipment, um, not only through the commit history, but also through the voice as it changes throughout the book. And um, so the story that I have about this, which is which is very interesting to me, um, several months back, probably f three or four months ago now, I was in a class and um, somebody asked me a question about one of the, I was teaching functional programming and they asked me a question about one of these topics. And I said, you know, I have a really good section in my book, chapter two or three or whatever. Let me, let me just pull that up and I'll just show you some examples from that section. So I pulled it up. And I was reading through the text that I had written, and there was a, a narrative going on in the back of my head as I was reading it to the class. I didn't let it on to them, but there was a narrative going on in the back of my head where I was thinking, that's interesting the way I said that, because that's not how I would describe it now. Um, I would describe that technique in this way, and yet I said it differently in the book. And my instinct was, make yourself a mental note, you should go back and edit this. Right, Like go back and improve this text in the book because you now understand this thing better. Uh, you're more of a master of that technique, so articulate it in a different way. And so I made that mental bookmark and then I went back after the class and looked at it and I looked at the commit history. And it turns out that section was one of the earliest sections that I had written. It was one of the few that hadn't really been updated much throughout that, you know, almost year long process of writing the book. And I began to realize that what I had done almost unwittingly is I had captured a moment in time by writing incrementally and writing in the open. I captured a moment in time that I could not today recreate. I couldn't have taken that topic and described it in that way because my brain has already been trained to think about it more formally. But because I chose to write about it as I was going, I documented a path that others may get some benefit from because I benefited from it. And so I actually chose to leave in the more, maybe you would say naive explanation of that topic, because I think that is a more useful way to speak to somebody that doesn't have all the assumptions that I have already started to pollute my own abilities with. Another way of saying this is uh, Douglas Crockford, who's a well-known figure in the JavaScript world, he wrote JavaScript, The Good Parts, and uh, he's a, a polarizing figure, but well-known nonetheless, and, and we owe a lot of JavaScript to him. Um, in a talk that he gave back in, I don't know, 2012 or something like that, he said, the curse of the monad is that once you understand it, you stop being able to teach it. And that was a funny joke line that he got in his talk, but I've really always attached a lot of profound meaning to that. Once you understand something, do you stop being able to teach it to people who don't understand it? And I, I'm very cognizant of that. I'm very aware and cautious of getting so far down the road on a topic that I've forgotten what it was like to not know it. Um, and, and I think that's, I think that's important for, for beginners and, and advanced people as well to be able to see that journey. Yeah, that's a really interesting, uh, account of um, the value of 
publishing as you one one particular value of publishing as you go mm-hmm. um, in the uh prescriptive nonfiction <laughs> area of publishing which is what books books like this are um uh a lot of people i mean we you know when lean pub started a long time ago there would often be people quite skeptical about approaches like the one you're describing i mean why would i want to read a book before it's finished why would i start publishing a book before i'm at the end um and in particular where you're trying to teach something actually letting people see and and and, and this is something i hadn't considered before giving yourself the opportunity to see where you were in the mm-hmm. past um can be really really instructive um could you talk a little bit about what the functional light programming paradigm is if it's something beyond what you've just been describing yeah absolutely um uh the subtitle for the book as you mentioned is balanced pragmatic fp in javascript and that is an attempt not to not in in a um a uh, critical way to disparage uh, other functional materials. I drew upon a great many resources in writing this book of, of, of other peers of mine, and they all have the other approaches, and those are great. So I don't mean to disparage that. But one of the things that I think they often do is elevate the formalism of FP, of functional programming, above the okay, but I, I just need to improve this one line of code. Is there anything I can do to make this co- this one line? No, 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 but you you have to understand that you have to re-architect the whole flow of data through your app to do it. And it's like that's too much for somebody to, to ingest and be able to do anything practical with. So what I wanted to do was take um, – take you on a journey where you started to see small little incremental changes that you could make to your code, that each one of those small incremental changes in and of themselves have a benefit to the code. And the bigger picture is that at the end of that, you've gone quite a ways up the mountain. You're not at the top. You're not a functional mountain. I'm not for sure. Uh, But you've gotten quite a ways up the mountain before you even realize that you were climbing the mountain. That's really what I wanted people to have is can can on day one and on the first, you know, couple dozen pages of this book, is there something before I even fully understand what functional programming is about, can I start to improve my code? A lot of times I've had functional programmers tell me functional programming is an all or nothing proposition. It's either all functional programming, 100 percent. Or 99% is as good as 0% because that 1% is the part that's going to kill you anyway. So it's not even worth the effort unless you go all in. And I just think that's totally bogus. I think if you can take 10% of these ideas and apply them to your code, they're better. But, but you can't take a traditional FP text and do that. That they have this holistic way of of talking about type and category theory and uh, you know data structure organization and the flow of data and and all of that. Like they have this very holistic approach that it's all or nothing, very much so. Um, and I think you can get there incrementally. I and I and I hope that JavaScript developers, maybe even more so than any other language can find the benefit in that because JavaScript is uniquely capable as a multi-paradigm language, not the only one, but it has some very unique characteristics that enable it to be very powerful 
Um, and multi-paradigm, by the way, doesn't just mean that you could either do a class-oriented program or a procedural program or a functional program or any of the other paradigms. It doesn't just mean that. It means that you can mix and match those paradigms in the same program. I think JavaScript is is almost unique in its ability to do that. And so I, I chose JavaScript not only because I like the language, because I think it's a really good vehicle for telling that story. Write an imperative program the way you've always done, and then change this one line of code to be a little bit more adherent to the spirit of functional programming. And you you mixed you you have an imperative program with some functional principles, and the program's better as a result. And then tomorrow, do a little bit more of that, and tomorrow the day after, do a little bit more. So functional light is really about incrementally applying the concepts of functional programming to pragmatic, real world JavaScript. That's really what it's about. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about: I'm not often shocked, like jaw drops open by things I read in programming books. Uh-huh. Um, uh, but you have a line in there where you say the global average for a programmer's line of code written per day is about 10. <laughs> yeah. And I, I was like, wow. And I was wondering if you could just explain what it is that I've been so ignorant of to be shocked by that. Yeah. Well, um, I, I, to be honest with you, those, those kinds of statistics, there's, there's that statistic that I informally cite. And then another one that I informally cite, which is that it's estimated that developers spend about 70% of their day reading code, not writing code. So both of those statistics are ones that if you try to find a formal citation for, you'll probably come up empty, or at least I did. Um, but they're things I've heard anecdotally for years. And I went try as when I wanted to cite them here, I went looking and, what I find from people is, for example, to your question, where does that 10 lines of code come from? I used to say five because I remember in my computer science class, I had a professor say that to us, and this is 20 whatever years ago now, but I remember a professor saying that to us and that stuck in my head, five lines of code. My God, he wants me to write 400 lines of code in this app and and yet I'm I can only do five lines a day. I don't have enough days to get it. I just remember that stuck in my head from back then. And I, so I had I had for years cited the five as that number. And then I started searching and I saw more people saying 10. So maybe, maybe we're uh, a little bit more effective as programmers now than we were 20 years ago. But, but where that, where that number seems to come from is, you know, kind of some of what we talked about earlier. When you factor in that somebody writes a piece of code and then has to go back and rewrite all or part of it the next day and then rewrite all or part of it the next day, the incremental change to the code base is not the 50 lines of code that you literally wrote, but the 10 new lines of production code that you were able to get in there in having rewritten the previous 40 lines from the day before. Um, and, and so that's, that's really where that comes from. It's the overall context, not just literally raw lines of code written, but lines of code added to production quality code. The net of that is a lot less than we would expect because we spend so much time doing all these other things with code. Um, moving on to the, uh, nuts and bolts of putting a book together. Um, you found 738 backers, I believe, for your book through a crowdfunding campaign. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned this in the dedication to your book. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, just to, you know, for the benefit of anyone out there who's thinking about doing a similar thing, uh, how did you go about doing that campaign? 
Yeah, so I did I did that funding campaign for this book because I had done a funding campaign for the You Don't Know JS books four plus years ago. Um, so I actually had already had practice at crowdfunding a book project, which is good. Um, the more you can do it, the more you can get practice, the better. Um, so initially, way back when, when I did that, I wanted to test whether or not people would like the book idea. And I wanted a mechanism by which I could qualify a buyer uh, in other in, in t- if you're not familiar with sales, that means that you know that that person is actually going to pay, not just that they say they will, but you know that there's a strong likelihood that they can and will pay. So I wanted to qualify my audience. I wanted to know how many people would pay for this, not just how many people would read it, but how many people would pay for it. This was before having written that that whole series of books. And the traditional publisher route with O'Reilly was, we're going to pay you 10000 or 5000 or whatever the you know advance is. You'll spend hundreds and hundreds of hours of your time writing it and then we'll see whether or not people want to buy it and if you're lucky then they'll enough people will buy it that you'll pay off that advance and then maybe a couple of years from now start to get some checks from us for for royalties right that was the theory and i said no that 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 is broken i'm not going to spend 500 hours of my time guessing whether people like this idea so i needed a way to get a better sense. So what I did was I said, I'm, here's what I want, O'Reilly. I, I went to O'Reilly and I said, here's what I want. I don't want you to pay me any advance at all. I'm going to do a crowdfunding campaign, which I will use the funds of that as my advance if I'm successful. I'll do a crowdfunding campaign. And all I want you, O'Reilly, to promise is if I'm successful and if it gets funded, that all the books that I promise to my backers that you'll fulfill those. So in other words, your advance to me is not an advance on money, but an advance on promises of print and digital copies of this book. Their risk then is less monetary and more if I reached every single potential reader of my um, audience with that crowdfunding campaign and never sold another book, then they would lose (laughs) in that deal. Um, But if they didn't, uh, you know, if I didn't do that, then they would stand to make sales eventually. So that reduced their risk, substantially reduced my risk because I knew that if I didn't get enough backers or enough money pledged, then maybe this wasn't the right audience. Maybe I didn't have the right voice for that and I shouldn't waste my 500 hours. And it reduced risk for my readers because they weren't buying a book that was never going to happen. Um, they were only committing money if enough people said, yes, let's make it happen. So I thought, hey, this is a great idea. Let's reduce the risk for everybody involved and do it this way. So I pitched them on it and I was blown away that they actually agreed. They're like, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do it. Um, so we did that. And that turned out to be uh, very successful. Um, we we did. This is my daughter here. Sorry. Hello. Uh, turned out to be very successful that we did um, get the campaign funded and um, and actually exceeded the funding goal, which was pretty great, too. Um, and in the process of writing that book uh, series, uh, the initial plan had been let's do three short 50-page books. The eventual series ended up at six books of 1,100 pages total. So um, – in retrospect, I should have tried to raise a lot more money <laughs> because the money that I raised was for a much smaller book series than what I ended up writing. 
But um, nevertheless, I still consider it very much a success. So fast forward to this new book. And um, at this point, I wasn't really uh, trying to judge the demand because I'd already built up enough of a reputation that I kind of knew what people would buy and not buy. Um, this is a more niche topic, but I still kind of have a pretty good sense that people will buy it. But here I wanted to, I had a different goal. Here my goal was, can people, will, will people like this book enough to give me the money that it takes to make a professional quality out of it? Like I could write all of this stuff in blog posts, but like there's editing and art and a lot of those expenses is it worth it enough to people? Like if I tell you what it's going to cost me to get this book off the ground, do people like this book enough to, to really make it a book versus uh, should I like to me, I was already going to write it, but should, am I going to write it as a bunch of blog posts uh, or just on GitHub or do people really value this information enough to fund the process of making it into a real quality book? And so that's what that was testing was, you know, do people care enough to, to get this in book form versus a blog. And again, thankfully, uh, people did, they did care and we, we exceeded that. So, and did you use Kickstarter or did you use something else? So Kickstarter was for the first campaign, the one for you don't know JS way back. And then for this one, I did Indiegogo. Okay. Um, mostly because this one, um, I was kind of already sure that I wanted to do it, but I, it was, so in, in other words, it wasn't like really fully testing with Indiegogo. They give you the option of the flexible funding, meaning you get the funds, even if you don't meet your goal, whereas Kickstarter, it's an all or nothing. And so I kind of knew that even if I only made 50% of the way there, I'd probably still do the book. Um, but, uh, with Kickstarter, if I hadn't gotten a hundred percent there, I'd have gotten nothing. And so and that's why I chose Indiegogo this time. Um, we're nearing the end of uh, the interview, which is now when I get to ask uh, one or two self-interested questions. Um, sure. And the first one is, why did you decide to go with LeanPub um, for this book? Yeah. Um, so I guess the the first answer to that or the, the most important answer to that question was I determined that self-publishing was better for me because – I really wanted the control of distribution. And what I was impressed by was so many other authors that I knew and that I respect having chosen this and then being able to distribute their books in so many other ways other than just on the one side. In other words, I chose LeanPub because I saw many other authors find LeanPub not to be a closed-walled garden. And that was the very opposite of what I wanted. I didn't want to create another place where my book was locked up in some specific way and not be able to put it in humble bundles or give it away for free someday if I feel like it or whatever. I wanted that freedom in case I uh, wanted to go that direction. And I'd seen several other authors be successful at starting on LeanPub and then taking it more broadly. Uh, and that was attractive to me. So it wasn't even really a question where I researched other ones and said, well, y'all pay better royalties or anything like that. It was really just the social proof that I had several other authors that I trust and respect had had been able to do the thing that I wanted to do, which was get a good publishing platform and then expand. Uh, and that was very attractive. Um, my last question is, and I might know the answer to this one, if there was one thing we could build for you or one thing we could fix for you, uh, what would that what would that one thing be? If there's if there's anything you can think of, sometimes people 
Um, well, so so at the moment, um, there's 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 lots of little things that uh, that I've learned and would like to improve, um, and I've already peppered your support staff with a number of those emails. Um, but at the one at at the moment, um, I I found an interesting thing with my books, and I'm not even really sure why, but more so than most other authors, people seem to like print copies of my books. Um, uh, not really getting too much into the details of my deal with O'Reilly, but probably 40% of my book sales of You Don't Know JS are still print copies or have been until recently. Print copies of those books. And that's a phenomenally high number compared to most publishers and most most authors. I have some theories uh, about why that may be that, you know, may or may not hold any water. But nevertheless, I have demand for print copies of my books and I'm already getting several dozen questions about this book. Hey, you're going to make this in print. Well, I've researched that. I've found uh, on demand printers uh, for that. Um, but it seems to be that that direction is like, well, you know, we can do that if you want to sell on Amazon, which Amazon has pros and cons. Um, but you know, since you asked if I had some way to click a button and be able to integrate with create space or whoever, you know, to be able to do print on demand through lean pub for me, that would be beneficial because people seem to like the print copies of my books. Yeah. We've had people ask us about that before. Um, what we do have, and it's pretty, it's pretty battle tested is a print ready PDF export mm-hmm. option. I don't know if you've come across that. And for, for, a for a very heavily formatted book, it might not be exactly the right thing, but for many LeanPub authors, they've reported back that they can just click the button, upload it to Lulu or Create Space or whatever, um, and they kind of get they get what they need. No, that, I'm I'm totally planning on that. I'm 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 relying upon that. But it would be awesome if uh, instead of me telling people, well, if you want the print, go to Amazon. I'd love to be able to tell people, just keep coming to my lean pub page and click here and be able to buy it. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad for the stuff that you all have. And I like the platform. I made a good decision publishing here and I'm going to keep doing that. Um, but I, I would love to be able to keep serving the desires of people, which is that they still want print for some reason. (laughs) Well, thanks. Thanks very much for that feedback. That's very, very clear. And um, we always listen very closely to things that people say, especially people who, well, not just, I shouldn't say especially anybody, but if you've published many books with a conventional publisher and you've got data like that, um, that's very useful for us to hear. Um, Well, Kyle, I wanted to say um, congratulations on launching your new book. Um, Thank you. And thanks very much. Good luck with uh, Kyle Simpson week. (laughs) <laughs> right, um, front end masters, and thanks for being on the Front Matter podcast and for being a Lean Pub author. Uh, it's an honor to have been here to to talk. Thanks for listening. I appreciate it very much. Thanks.